On this podcast, we explore fantastical thinking, moral panics, urban legends, conspiracy theories, hoaxes, and crazes, examine the forces that shape our culture, and tell the stories that create the realities we share, and sometimes the realities we don't. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria. The object of this new sport is to streak from one end of campus to another, wearing nothing more than a smile. I think it's fantastic. I see nothing wrong with it whatsoever. Oh, I guess it's all right for the young folks. For people to get naked and run around campus in groups of hundreds and thousands doesn't serve any purpose. I think this is the best thing that's happened to college campuses. Uh, it really brings everybody together, as you can see right here, and it'll bring everybody together tonight when I'm sure everybody will take off their clothes and do it again. Tonight, live, the 46th Annual Academy Award Presentation. It was the evening of April 2nd, 1974, and actor David Niven was in the middle of introducing Elizabeth Taylor so that she could reveal the Academy Award for Best Picture, the crescendo of the opulent annual event. David, in his neat tuxedo and bow tie, heard the crowd react before he could see what they were reacting to. A shaggy-haired and shaggy-mustached 33-year-old man jogging naked across the legendary stage, flashing a confident peace sign out to millions of American viewers is a very important contributor to world entertainment and someone quite likely The streaker's name was Robert Opel and he was a man who seemed to have pulled off the impossible claiming he snuck backstage at the most prestigious awards show in the world while disguised as a press photographer, able to pass through several rounds of some of the toughest security in history. When he ran across the camera's shot, the bottom half of his body was cut off at just the right spot so as not to reveal his well, let's let David Niven tell his legendary joke that even my granny remembered word for word when I asked her about it 50 years later. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that, um, that was almost bound to happen. <laughs> but isn't it fascinating that... <laughs> fascinating to think that, that probably the only laugh that man will ever get in his life is by stripping off and showing his shortcomings. After the streaker had struck and gone, Elizabeth Taylor just could not hold it together. Francis Ford Coppola, producer. I'm nervous. That really upset me. <laughs> I think I'm jealous. It was a shocking, seemingly unsanctioned interruption 
the kind that many of us dream of seeing whenever we watch anything live. And this streak was certainly the most memorable Oscars moment up until the 2022 Oscars slap. Surprisingly, Robert's stunt did not lead to a dramatic tackle and subsequent arrest for attempting to show his naked body to an entire nation. Instead, he was welcomed on to Winner's Row, where he was allowed to hold a press conference, posing for photos and answering questions from excited reporters. Robert Metzl, the event's longtime business manager, told the LA Times a couple years later that he believed the whole thing to be staged and that his wife claimed that David borrowed a pen from her in the lobby so that he could mark down his shortcomings quip before he actually went on stage. But others claimed that the stunt was all Robert, a man already known for other such provocative pranks. But regardless of whether this was truly one of the most impressive tricks ever pulled off on national TV or a PR hoax meant to draw more young viewers into what then seemed like a pretty boring annual event, Robert Opel became an instant celebrity, appearing on popular talk shows and even becoming, for a hot second, a professional streaker, paid to zip naked through mansion parties of the rich and famous. But this was far more than just one man daring to bear it all for the bit. It was a culmination of a brief but profoundly popular craze that swept across American colleges in the spring of 1974. With reports of streaks through college sports games, college classrooms, across downtowns, large and small, interrupting city council meetings, once even gracing the halls of Wall Street's Chase Manhattan Plaza. During a Beach Boys concert, two naked men ran across the stage, revealing themselves to be Mike Love and Dennis Wilson. Even Snoopy streaked during the craze, appearing as his alter ego, big man on campus, Joe Cool. He tossed off his sunglasses, removed his collar, and went streaking through the fourth panel of the Peanuts comic. Tonight Show host Johnny Carson declared that streaking offered a whole new meaning to the term big man on campus. Walter Cronkite, one of the most famous voices working in the media at that time, called the craze a, quote, grand spring adventure. And as is true with any fad, merchandisers pumped out the kitsch, streak freak buttons, keep on streaking t-shirts and patches, mugs, necklaces, pink underwear printed with the words too shy to streak, and the best one, a novelty wristwatch featuring a streaking Richard Nixon. 
a novelty country song topped the Billboard Hot 100 chart for three weeks straight, selling over 5 million copies, surrounded by dozens of other songs that used the craze as their theme. But then, just as soon as the streak peaked on a national television awards show after it essentially had gone completely viral, the trend started to dissipate away. Eventually, it would take its place as a run-of-the-mill prank, still performed once in a while at sports games or on prank shows like Jackass or across college lawns as rites of passage. The same college lawns where naked ghosts of the past once ruled the school and an America overwhelmed by the modern world welcomed these apparently innocent jests warmly with open but well-clothed loving arms. Legend has it that when it comes to the American history of running naked in public for attention, it all began at the most elite academic institution in the nation, where the most brilliant minds of the next generation are molded into the great leaders of the future. In 1785, Charles Adams, the son of the second president of the United States, John Adams, participated with some other 18th century buddies in a drunken streak across Harvard Yard. Though no direct evidence of this exists, Local tour guides and history bloggers have long enjoyed relaying this tale as a fun little party fact. But the actual first streak on record came in 1804, when a Washington University student named George William Crump ran down the old colonnade naked, a young man who would later be elected to the United States House of Representatives. Decades later, streaking became a favorite transgression at Washington U, with then-college president and former Confederate General Robert E. Lee calling it a hardy, harmless, and masculine prank blessing the practice as a spring rite of passage. Or, so the legend goes, passed on through institutional lore, tragically with no primary sources to be found.
Over the next century, there were only a handful of recorded naked runs, and it wasn't until 1972 that guys at the University of Notre Dame introduced America to the term streaking. They announced a formal Streakers Olympics, which included a marathon made up of mostly young men that made the national news. When other colleges heard about this epic prank, it slowly grew in popularity, and by 1973, the Times was calling streaking a, quote, growing Los Angeles fad. But shit really popped off in January of 1974, when thousands of students from Florida State University, followed by the University of Washington, the University of Maryland, and the University of Texas, got in on the unprecedented, unclothed action. And by the early part of May, streaking had made headlines across most, if not all, major newspapers and TV news networks. And then hordes of streakers were seen at colleges like Harvard, Columbia, the University of Missouri, Barnard College, Virginia Polytech, and Virginia State University. At the University of Missouri, 1,500 students watched 15 streakers sprint to a lone trumpeter playing the school's fight song. Students from the University of Tennessee streaked down Cumberland Avenue, somehow getting onto a roof and then on top of a billboard, while still others climbed on top of a statue of a bull to ride naked, rodeo style. At the University of Georgia, 15,000 Athenians lined the route down Sanford Avenue with chairs and coolers of beer, waiting to catch a glimpse of hundreds of these naked students. Even streaking cadets at West Point were reportedly chased around by their fully uniformed superiors. Back at Harvard, students donned surgical masks and streaked through an anatomy exam. The University of South Carolina threw an entire naked carnival, complete with sideshows like a naked Tarzan flexing for the spectators. At both the University of Georgia and Illinois, a handful of students actually skydived naked and then floated down to campus on parachutes with one of these parachuters, as the press called them, landing in an actual cesspool, which is really funny. As fads usually go, this one soon became self-referential, meta, if you will, with Michigan State streakers running through a class called criminal sexual deviation, and even more so when University of Maine students streaked a staff meeting about how to address the issue of campus streaking. As the craze was beginning to show itself, the media was perplexed at how exactly to respond. The New York Times asked, quote, is it an art form? Is it an uncontrollable urge? Is it political? 
perhaps perverse, healthy, naughty. But it seems that the majority of administrators and political pundits agreed that it was all just harmless fun, rather than something lewd or offensive. Though a few university officials condemned the activities and sought to punish or even expel those who joined the festivities, most school administrators, politicians, and media personalities were largely unconcerned and even tickled pink by the whole affair. The official statement out of Northwestern University was, quote, We'd like to leave it alone. After all, it's springtime. The official policy out of the University of Georgia was non-interference. It's true that a bill was introduced in South Carolina that would require expulsion and 90 days in jail for anyone caught streaking, but that never really went anywhere. Fines for the prank were far more common, with the University of Texas taking $50 per streak, but sometimes, if it was all disruptive enough, closer to $200. At one school, the Association for Student Streakers, or ASS, began collecting donations to pay the fines of their cohorts. The National Safety Council actually released official safety tips for streakers. The council made it clear that they did not condone streaking themselves, but they wanted to be a cool mom about it. If you're gonna streak, I'd rather you do it safely. Considerations included wearing sneakers as, quote, a cut foot could end a streaking career prematurely. Participants must also opt to wear reflector tape stuck to both their front and back to create what the council called headlights and taillights, and to watch out for hazards like open manholes and barbed wire fences. Oh, and lastly, make sure you remember your glasses. Okay, thanks, Mom. More after this. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never-frozen, ready-to-eat gourmet meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box.
box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com And now... Back to the show. But this massive streaking fad did not come without its predecessors. And in fact, it was claiming its place in a decades-long tradition of college pranks and challenges that good old boys had dreamed up while passed out drunk on the cool floors of their shared dorm bathrooms. We can trace the first of these college crazes to 1939, when campuses were made up almost entirely of affluent young white men able to afford an education even during the desperation of the Great Depression. And what did these fortunate young men do with their exceptional privilege? They swallowed live goldfish, of course. How did something like this even begin, you ask? Well, it was Harvard again. Fight fiercely, Harvard. Fight, fight, fight. Demonstrate to them our skill. Albeit they possess the might. In the early spring, a young man running for class president named Lothrop Withington Jr. started bragging to his friends that he once ate a live goldfish for reasons that remain unclear. Everyone was like, Lothrop, I'm so sure, and then bet him the equivalent of $200 in today's money that he wouldn't actually do it. You're on, said a confident Lothrop, and two days later on March 3rd, the stunt got underway as he stood dead center in a chanting circle of students and one reporter from Boston. Smirking and basking in the attention, Lothrop lifted the writhing goldfish by the tail and lowered it theatrically into his mouth, chewed, gagged, and then swallowed. The crowd went wild as he pulled out a toothbrush and told the reporter, quote, <laughs> The scales caught a bit in my throat as they went down. After the publication of the article about Lothrop Withington Jr., 
goldfish swallowing became a viral challenge across the colleges of the country, not unlike those we see burn across social media today. The record for the most live goldfish swallowed at once eventually rose to 101. Now, education is required for phone booth jamming, uh, mathematics. And then in the late 1950s, there was phone booth stuffing, or phone booth jamming, in which as many students as possible jam themselves into phone booths. We're talking like 25 young adult bodies in one three foot by three foot by seven foot rectangular prism. As the competition spread across the country, class absences rose as students obsessed over how to fit more and more inside, using geometry and calculus, even starving themselves to create more space. Notes from a speech to the American Society of Social Scientists covering the phenomenon gave the details, quote, this spring, Cambridge University students announced that 15 of their number had squeezed into one phone booth. Students in South Africa then pushed the number up to 25. Not to be outdone by foreigners, 32 students at Modesto Junior College, California, claimed to have crammed themselves into one booth. And the following week, the Oklahoma City University chapter of Lambda Chi Alpha managed to jam 33 of its fraternity brothers into one booth before 1,500 cheering witnesses. But compared to these relatively innocent jests, brutal goldfish mutilations aside, of course, the favorite college prank of the early 1950s was different, really different, and included far more profound property damage and likely some psychological damage as well. The absolute pandemonium of the post-war panty raid craze began in February of 1949 at Illinois' Augustana College when 125 young men snuck into the forbidden women's building through the heating tunnels under the campus. As soon as they breached the perimeter of the space, they were met with a bewildered and furious house mother, whom they promptly pushed into a room, closing the door and locking her inside. And then, almost 25 years before college slasher horror movies made it a cliche, the men actually cut both the phone lines and the power leaving the building pitch black and the women unable to call for help. Though the students' original intention had been simply to drunkenly conquer the only building they weren't allowed to access due to a policy against gender mixing, a couple of the men stole pairs of the women's underwear, which became the symbolic trophies of every successful raid to come. Immediately, stories of the Illinois students 
hijinks made it into the New York Times, Time Magazine, and the Chicago Tribune. But no charges were brought against those involved, and the schools themselves took a general boys-will-be-boys attitude. And it seemed like that might be the end of it. But then, three years later, on March 21st, 1952, the first day of spring arrived, along with that alleged madness it brings. After dinner in the quad, a young man from the University of Michigan began playing Glenn Miller's Serenade in Blue on his trumpet, which another student mimicked across the lawn using a trombone. Then someone blasted Slaughter on 10th Avenue on their phonograph and held it to his dorm window. Then two tuba players popped out of nowhere and started playing along. Annoyed, other students started yelling at them to shut up. But did they heed these words? Hell no. Instead, in came a guy who somehow had a portable foghorn. With that, everyone just went fucking crazy with around 600 people pouring out of the dorms and dining halls and on to the lawn. As the scene got more and more chaotic and spilled out onto public streets, a pair of local cops showed up to address the heart of the mess. When the mass of students saw the police cruiser roll up to the lawn where this bizarre musical battle was still taking place, an immediate, wordless truce was reached between all of the students. And then, 600 pairs of eyes snapped towards the cops, and a large group began to charge, forcing the officers to retreat back into their car. Once locked inside, they were swarmed by the crowd who rocked the car back and forth until the police were finally able to push the cruiser through the thick sea of bodies. Emboldened by this victory and ready to take it all to the next level, someone yelled with all their drunken might, To the women's dorms! and hundreds of young men crossed the lawn to descend upon the building. They started by breaking in the side windows, by cutting through screens and kicking down doors as the young women inside poured buckets of water on their heads from the windows above. Nonetheless, the men pushed through the halls and into their rooms, grabbing as many of their intimate articles as they could find. The raid made national headlines and sparked a string of copycat events, 
especially after the lax attitude of the university dean of students, who announced that there would be no disciplinary action against the offenders. And just like streaking, two decades later, he would laugh off the tomfoolery as, quote, a form of spring madness. <laughs> and let himself off the hook by claiming that, quote, No human being has ever attempted to shift the vernal equinox. As this viral prank spread, panty raiders began covering their faces with bandanas or putting underwear on their heads to hide their identities. At the University of Oklahoma, a raid dubbed Lust for Lace ended up in a pretty violent egg fight. At the University of Tennessee, students started shooting out streetlights to better move in stealth. UT Arlington students hoisted pairs of underwear as a replacement for the American flag and then greased the pole the panty raiders were conquering the campuses. That quarter, more than 52 colleges experienced riotous panty raids in what was referred to by newspapers as an epidemic. In late May at the University of Missouri, 2,000 guys busted into the women's dorm building with the same frightening tactics. This time, however, the women were there waiting for them, ready for an all-out fucking brawl. They blasted them with water, hit them with brooms and the back ends of mops, threw glass Coke bottles and whatever they could find. But the enormous crowd of men overtook them, breaking into their bedrooms and stealing not only their underwear, but also their most valuable items, jewelry, cash, and even furniture. The next day, the authorities estimated that the total destruction would cost the school thousands of dollars, likely tens of thousands of dollars today. But these boys will be boys got away with a lot more than that. When a rare University of Kentucky student was handcuffed, panty raiders still in the building threw lit cigarettes and beer cans at the cop car below, while those on the ground rocked the cruiser back and forth trying to flip it over. They managed to threaten the cops to the degree that, in order to quell the chaos, they agreed to release the arrested man on bond and lessen the burglary charges to disturbing the peace right then and there. But that's not all. At the University of Miami, they started letting the air out of cops' tires before the raids began. Columbia students shot fireworks and used actual dynamite blasting caps to scare police. At numerous raids, the cops used tear gas, and at the University of Missouri, the governor actually called the National Guard. More after this. Friends, hello. I'm Mike Rignetta, the host of Never Post, a new and independent news podcast about and for the internet. In addition to bringing you the latest in current events, we try to figure out why the internet and the world because of the internet is the way it is. 
How did influencers destroy tween fashion? What is posting disease and how do you ensure you don't catch it? From what device must one send important emails? We talk about what's going on online and ask together why. Why are we like this? Find Never Post wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the show. So now, let's take a look at one of the most explosive moments in the streaking craze of 1974, when the battle for the naked run record got way out of control. On March 6th, the University of Georgia broke the standing record with a group of 1,500 streakers all taking to the street at the same time. Well, let me tell you, that put a bee in the bonnet, likely the only clothing they would later be wearing, of the University of Delaware population. The very next day, on the warm weeknight of March 7th, there was a palpable primal electricity in the Newark air as a plan was forming through a network of whispers and triple dog dares, with seasoned streakers calling out all the chickens who were still refusing to join their university's naked war effort to secure the national record. The message that was telephoning across campus said that these mysterious instigators were gathering a crowd even bigger than Georgia's and that they would be running from East Campus down Main Street past the most popular college bar in town, the Deer Park Tavern, where the less daring would wait to receive their unadorned royalty just before midnight. Because it was one of those charged evenings where everyone knew something unusually epic was coming, the students at the tavern started drinking earlier than usual and also more than usual. And by nightfall, things started to take on a darker tone. You know the one. Around 10.30 p.m., the bar crowd was growing rapidly, with 300 students trying to push into the entrance, spilling out onto the sidewalk and into the road. Those that made it inside began loudly demanding drinks, grabbing bottles from behind the bar, and completely overwhelming the staff. At this point, Everyone was completely shit-wrecked, and that's when witnesses said students started smashing bottles. Back at the East Campus lawn where the streak was set to begin, the crowd had swelled to more than a thousand. Weekly Post writer Jeff Crossman observed, quote, By this time, the scene bordered on surrealism. Male students carried female partners, double-decker on their shoulders for a better view. The few small trees dotting the lawn were decorated in their uppermost branches with student lookouts. As the scene back at the Deer Park Tavern grew more violent, the owner screamed at the students to leave his property at once, and along with his staff, they were able to push them out and lock the door. 
At that point, the police were aware of what was going on, and they called to demand that the local liquor store close and lock its doors immediately. But someone in the know led a breakaway group to the storage building where Deer Park kept all their surplus liquor. They smashed in the door and arrived back at the crowd, carrying this dangerous bounty in their arms like privileged, pillaging pirates. It was about the same time that 1,500 streakers jogged past the Deer Park Tavern, received with hundreds of slurred screams and stumbled exultations. As the two groups merged and formed one huge and feral crowd, students skipped and chanted up Main Street in an unsanctioned parade street party, possessed by the timeless spirit of Dionysian transgression, with naked men and women dancing on the rooftops of restaurants, dangling from street lamps, and roaring with reckless abandon. A large group of students had stuck around the East Campus lawn where the record-breaking streak began, but when they got word of the crazy shit that was going down on Main Street, they too headed down to meet them, growing the mob to 4,000 people, many of whom were still totally naked except for their running shoes. It wasn't until this point in the night that two measly cop cars rolled up the street toward the chaos, and that's when a hush came over the thousands of rowdy students. From somewhere in the crowd, a single beer bottle sailed above them and then shattered on the window of a police cruiser. And then the darkly drunk crowd descended upon them, smashing the patrol car windshield with rocks and throwing handfuls of gravel at the faces of the cops. After they called for backup, the students were met with 150 county and state police, with the chief yelling into the PA that everyone better disperse. Those that didn't disperse responded with even more bottles and then bricks, and the authorities answered back with 30 canisters of tear gas. Even more police had to be bussed in from other local departments, and finally 230 of them were able to quell the riot, sending the students back to their dorms to sleep it off. In the end, 10 police officers would be hospitalized and four police cars damaged, including one where the roof was smashed in. One eyewitness said that as he looked out over downtown the next morning, it, quote, looked like a war zone. Another witness recalled that what would come to be known as the Deer Park Riot was a traumatic event for Newark. 
around the same time as the Deer Park riot in Delaware, a University of Georgia school official told the Atlantic Constitution, quote, streaking has definitely arrived at the country's oldest chartered state university, and we basically think it's good-natured college fun, sort of a modern version of the old panty raids. This longing for good-natured college fun came at a politically chaotic time, just a year before the end of the Vietnam War, just months before Richard Nixon's resignation due to the Watergate scandal, and at the same time that a massive recession was hitting a previously thriving economy. Many older proponents of streaking felt that this goofy viral sensation was an antidote to a national feeling of fear, something unthreatening that reminded them of the good old days. Newsweek magazine wrote at the time, quote, all seemed to agree that streaking was the sort of totally absurd phenomenon the nation needed after a winter of lousy news. You know, with all those bad things going on, Vietnam and the racial things, and this was our break. People just needed something uh, to help them lighten up, and that was streaking. In addition, for the last decade, the nation had been experiencing massive uprisings against the Vietnam War and its draft and in favor of black civil rights, gay civil rights and women's rights, all led for the first time by a massive youth movement that was willing to fight back against the establishment, literally. Leftist college groups and their protest tactics frightened and angered the 1950s panty-raid generation who came before, for whom the campus was a place they ruled unopposed. Time magazine wrote that, quote, folks are simply grateful that students are no longer rioting or building bombs, with the New York Times sharing the same sentiment, saying the practice had produced, quote, generally favorable comparisons with some more violent campus demonstrations of the 1960s. The Daily Iowan wrote, quote, all the trappings of yesteryear's demonstrations were present, except for the tension and lines of riot-equipped police. The right-wing publication, The National Review, wrote it plainly, quote, The spirit of the thing is entirely different from the defiant nudity and even public sexual intercourse seen in places like Berkeley during the later 1960s. The streaker, in contrast, is a humorist, a reliever of tensions. week after our big event on Thursday night, we picked up two men from off campus who were in the streaking attire. They were uh, completely nude, trying to break into a women's dormitory. Well, the students who were saying this was fun and game, I feel quite sure, would take a different point of view of it. Uh, if they had a sister or a daughter living in the dormitory um, and had uh, men that they did not know who were trying to get in. You don't know what's going to happen. To the University of Texas at Arlington to hear nearly 30 panelists talk about women, chiefly about opportunities for women and their changing image in the modern world. 
And in the modern world, perhaps it's not strange that some uninvited UTA students chose the occasion to express themselves by streaking, in at least two cases through the meeting itself. Though there were definitely women streaking across campus too, the vast majority of these naked runners were white men who experienced dramatically different college demographics than those who took part in the panty raids of the 1950s. Women's presence on campus had doubled from 1966 to 1974, on track to outnumber young men in four short years. And colleges that were formerly segregated by gender now put women on far more level ground. One man wrote to Time magazine that streaking was a way to combat feminism, quote, they have chosen the best possible way in which to show people that men and women are not equal. When women start wearing the pants, men start shedding them. In addition, black students were also able to enroll in classes in many universities for the first time, starting in the mid-1960s. For people to get naked and run around campus in groups of hundreds and thousands doesn't serve any purpose. Now, I couldn't find a single instance in any articles about black streakers, but I did find this quote from a student at the traditionally black Howard University, quote, Nothing like that will ever happen here. The students that go to Howard do not reflect the lack of morality or the banality and just outright decadence that occurs at white institutions. The same student paper ran an interview with campus activist Kawami Salter, quote, Imagine if political unity were found in streaking, people streaking for feminism, ethnic minority opportunities, better dorm food, lower tuition. Could administrators dismiss the impact of 5,000 or more streaking bodies? But would the streakers have been welcomed quite as warmly if they carried with them demands for political change? The Daily Iowan didn't think so. Quote, It's why streakers don't get busted. Streaking's not directed at entrenched power, just them kids having a good time. If we had streakers for socialism on Wall Street or asses for ecology streaking General Motors or blacks streaking George Wallace with sex painted in dayglow on their protruding places, there'd be a lot of naked people in jail. Interestingly, the most famous naked run of the craze was performed not by a drunken college frat boy, but by his diametric opposite, a prolific gay artist and activist from the Bay Area. By the late 1970s, Oscars streaker Robert Opal became famous in the gay scene for both his revolutionary art gallery that hosted early shows by Robert Maplethorpe and Tom of Finland and his creative political pranks, many of them performed naked, many of them far more controversial and combative. If America had known who he really was and what his radical politics were, who knows what his reception may have been. 
As we saw with these streaking and panty raid riots, and more modernly, sports victory riots, which often include burning cop cars and massive property damage, the problem isn't usually with the riots themselves, the problem is with what the riots represent. Despite the violence toward authorities and the havoc wreaked upon campuses and downtowns that these crazes sometimes produced, the scenes never turned into the sometimes deadly police violence against protesters that had occurred in the years before. The foundational essay of this episode is Bill Kirkpatrick's It Beats Rocks and Tear Gas, Streaking and Cultural Politics in the Post-Vietnam Era, published in the Journal of Popular Culture in 2008. In it, Bill writes something very important to understand when it comes to talking about major trends and crazes in general. Quote, Streaking did not launch that political movement, but it did briefly embody it and cannot be fully understood apart from that context. In other words, streaking didn't do, but it does show. Not unlike the viral crazes and the pranks we see today burning across social media, what anthropological, psychological meaning will some dork like me ascribe to these possibly meaningless outbursts of fun and frivolity? I don't want to fall into the academic trap of placing too much meaning on things that may just be random, silly trends. But at the same time, yes I do. Almost all interview comments from streakers themselves in 1974 sound something like this from a student in Wisconsin. Quote, We just want to have an old-fashioned college prank, you know, streaking for streaking's sake. I believe that to be true. When it comes to popular crazes, the intentions of those participating, young people trying to be a part of something fun, are not as important as the way the trends are interpreted, commented upon, and then used by the media, politicians, administrators, and authorities to say something about this new generation. In the case of streaking, the reception of young people's transgressions was uncharacteristically positive. A stupid gag compared favorably to entire movements in the name of real, concrete, vital issues of war and civil rights. Conservative commentator George Will wrote at the time, quote, Who knows, maybe these bumptious, cheerful streakers will bring us together by bridging the generation gap. They could swallow fistfuls of goldfish and then streak into telephone booths. This is just what America needs to become a land fit for heroes. Nostalgia buffs in the buff. Streaking was used, bizarrely, to discredit the ideas and actions that had reshaped America in ways that a lot of older Americans at the top of the social order were deeply shaken by. 
most especially those affluent young men who may have once participated in the panty raids on a campus that belonged to them. Those who dreamed of returning to a more innocent time at the old alma mater. When young men were possessed by that same spring madness, when they broke down doors, cut phone lines and power lines, stole valuable property, shot fireworks at police, and smashed their cruisers in the name of nothing at all. This was American Hysteria. If you want ad-free early episodes and bonus content, like our show Hysteria Home Companion, where producer Miranda and I share stories left out of the episode, head to patreon.com slash American Hysteria and become a patron to support our show. And now, patrons can also become a close friend on Instagram to get daily secret weird updates and sneak peeks as the new episodes come together, some truly exclusive access to the absurdity behind creating this show. This episode has sound design by Clear Camo Studios, co-researched and edited by Riley Swedelius-Smith, Voice acting by Will Rogers. Co-produced and edited by Miranda Zickler and produced and hosted by me, Chelsea Weber-Smith. Thanks as always for listening. And if you're gonna streak in this day and age, it's probably not gonna go as well as it would have in 1974. Have a great week. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.